The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV shops or reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who wants those mother-freaking snakes off his mother-freaking plane, because with me is a guy who I just cannot believe has put up with me for 200 episodes of this show, because with me is the Quatsit to my Sherlock, because with me is a guy who is into all the cosplay that goes on on the Comic-Con floor, and of course with me is the guy who stopped a nuclear bomb from going off in New York City with absolutely no idea what he was doing. Can with me is a guy who knows not to fall out of helicopters when wearing a Santa suit. Can with me is a guy who is always ready with a grenade. Can with me is a guy who plays a really mean Max guitar. My co-host and jukebox hero. Can with me is a guy who has not been replaced by a Zygon. Can with me is a guy who thinks it was about time for heroes to wrap itself up. Can with me is a guy who is shocked to discover that his former master is Darth Vader. Can with me is a guy who has a Fear of Horta Party, thanks to the Equals. Get with me, because the guy who just wants to believe. My co host. Hey, everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we continue the fall 2016 TV season with our reviews of an episode of Walking Dead, Westworld, and Michael and Tim's Supernatural Review. But before all of that, we're going to jump right in with the News with Nico section. <laughs> Westworld renewed for season two. HBO has ordered a second season of its AI drama Westworld, as well as fellow freshmen Divorce and Insecure. In multi-platform viewing, Westworld thus far has averaged 11.7 million total viewers, which puts it ahead of Game of Thrones and True Detective in both of their first seasons. Good news for this new ATA favorite. Ratings. Election night draws 71 million, on par with Obama's historic 2008 win. A total audience of at least 71.4 million people tuned in on Tuesday night's marathon presidential election coverage across the four broadcast networks plus Fox News, CNN, and other cable outlets, according to reports from the website Deadline. That is on par with the audience that watched President Barack Obama's first presidential election win in 2008, and up from the 66.8 million who tuned in for Obama's 2020. 12 victory over former Massachusetts Governor Mitt Romney. Of that haul, 34.8 million came from the Big Four, led by NBC's 12 million. ABC followed with 9.7 million, while CBS and Fox did 8.8 million and 4.3 million, respectively. Among the cable networks, Fox News had the strongest night, averaging 12.7 million viewers, peaking at midnight with 15.4 million, while CNN averaged 11.5 million viewers. Director David Yates commits to all five Fantastic Beasts films. For nearly half a decade, director David Yates devoted himself to adapting J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter books as he helmed the final four movies in the series. Now Yates has made an even larger commitment to the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them series, which means that he won't be leaving this magical world anytime soon. At the world premiere for Fantastic Beasts, Yates told The Hollywood Reporter that he was on board to direct all four of the film's recently announced sequels. Between 
Watching both series, Yates will have directed nine films in the Potterverse by the time that final Fantastic Beasts movie is released. Warner Brothers hasn't officially scheduled the movies that far ahead, but it's likely to be another run of five years or more. One of the ways that Yates and Rowling have built up the anticipation for the Fantastic Beasts sequels has been with the reveal that Johnny Depp is playing Gellert Grindelwald, one of the legendary dark wizards who had close ties to fan favorite Albus Dumbledore. Casting is currently underway for the younger Dumbledore, who will appear in the sequel. We won't have to wait long to see the Fantastic Beasts in theaters, as it will be released next Friday, November 18th. The Magicians and the Expanse return date set. The Magicians will cast a spell over sci-fi with its second season premiere on Wednesday, January 25th at 9, 8 central. The fantasy series centers around a group of 20-somethings with magical abilities who discover that the stories they read as children aren't fiction. In season two, the unlikely heroes have been thrust into an even more dangerous and unfamiliar territory and must draw upon their novice skills to defeat a threat that could destroy the magical world itself. Driven by power, revenge, and survival, they learn that those who entered the hauntingly beautiful world of Fillory will never be the same as those who leave. A marathon of the first season airs on Saturday, November 12th from 9.30am to 11pm. If you did not watch the first season live, go and catch this marathon. It is an amazing series and you will not be disappointed. Additionally, the network announced that The Expanse Season 2 will debut with two episodes on Wednesday, February 8th at 10pm. The Big Bang Theory, Christopher Lloyd set to guest star in Mystery Role. Dr. Sheldon Cooper is about to meet Doc Brown. It was announced on Wednesday that CBS's The Big Bang Theory has tapped Back to the Future funny man Christopher Lloyd to guest star in the Thursday, December 1st episode. The veteran actor, whose small screen credits include appearances on everything from Cheers to Chuck, and of course his 1978-83 to stint on Taxi and an upcoming visit to Sci-Fi's 12 Monkeys, will be playing a role that fans will enjoy. The Executive producers have not specified what that role will be or whether it would involve time travel. But regardless, I'm excited to see Doc Brown himself on Big Bang Theory. And that's the news with Nico for this week. All right. With that, we're going to jump right into the reviews this week as we're going to talk about another very Negan-centric episode of The Walking Dead. We're going to cover the fourth episode of the seventh season entitled Service. The remaining members of the core group hold together in Alexandria. Then they receive a sobering visit. This week's episode made one thing completely clear, that Rick has lost his will or ability to fight back. What Negan did to him in the finale last season and continued in the premiere this season broke Rick, and Rick knows it. He even tells the people of Alexandria that he is not in charge anymore. Negan is. Of course, not everyone in the group can understand this or gets behind this, but they did not go through what Rick did. Besides maybe Daryl, Rick is the only one who feels that everything he did led to the result of Abraham and Glenn's death and blames himself for not being able to lead better and get them out of the situation they now find themselves in. He explains to Michonne that he can't handle losing anyone else. Michonne argues that everything we have we got from fighting and she's not wrong but Rick does not believe that they can win. When she suggested that they team up against Negan with the hilltop which if I'm not mistaken was a huge helping of foreshadowing he noted that the saviors still had the numbers. Maybe once 
once the Alexandrians meet King Ezekiel and his knights, the hilltop Alexandrians and kingdom will have enough fighters to actually mount a rebellion against Negan and his saviors. At the point Rick is as a leader, even with those additional forces, he probably would not be willing to fight. But that is merely a matter of the Rick Grimes cycle of the series. Think back to when they first arrived at the farmhouse, and again when they finally had secured the prison. Rick went through self-imposed times of self-healing, and especially at the prison, he needed a time away from leading. His farmer Rick phase, if you will. However, immediately following these stages, we see Rick become the leader that the group needs. We saw that Rick in this week's episode, the Rick on the camera, when he first arrived at Alexandria and Deanna interviewed each of the members of the group. Even Negan said, I would not have messed with him, but you're not him, are you, Rick? The thing is, we know that Rick is in there. It just needs to be released. We'll get back to that in a moment, but something important happened in this episode, something that for many was not a huge surprise, but it still packed an important aspect into the revelation. Near the end of the episode, Rick reveals to Michonne that Judith is not his blood. I know Judith isn't mine. I know it. I love her. She's my daughter. But she isn't mine. I had to accept that. I did. So I could keep her alive. I'll die before she does, and I hope that's a long time from now so I can raise her and protect her and teach her how to survive. This is how we live now. I had to accept that too so I could keep everyone else alive. This shows us a few things. First, Rick is a decent human being. I had to accept that signifies that this isn't a recent revelation for Rick and that he's likely known that Judith was Shane's for some time now. Now, I don't think Rick would simply throw Judith in a dumpster if he knew Judith was Shane's. She's a baby after all, and you'd have to be pretty awful to do that. Even though a crying baby isn't exactly the best accessory for a zombie apocalypse and selfish survival rules say that extra baggage should always be left behind, Rick is not that person. But first and foremost, it also reinforces that we know Rick is a good guy. I did so I could keep her alive has some interesting meaning too. Reading into that, Rick made the conscious choice to be okay with Judith being Shane's and the fact that he emphasized that he made the choice indicated that he struggled with that decision. But he did so in order to give this baby a chance to live and he's willing to do what it takes to make sure of that. And if that means deciding that she's his daughter in order to have that paternal drive to, to keep her alive kick in, then okay. Rick's doing this because this is how we live now, meaning that survival at all costs is tantamount. It reflects back on how Rick is treating the Negan situation now. He's not taking any risk that will get anyone else killed by mounting an attack on Negan because he can't stand to lose anyone else. Compare that to the risky decision to invade Negan's compound last season. He was willing to make that sacrifice then. While this isn't directly related back to Judith, Rick's choice of words help us understand why he's being so submissive to Negan instead of rising up. But back to Judith. If you noticed, the last time Rick went off the deep end in season 4 and 5, which really hit a dark spot when Rick tore out Joe's jugular with his teeth, it was when he wasn't with Judith, who was in the care of Tyrese and Carol at that time. It's possible that Rick accepting Judith as his own has a steadying effect on him. Will I test speeding up through that yellow light if my daughter is in the car with me? No, I won't. But I'm speed 
eraser when she isn't there. Maybe Rick needs Judith to stay moral and civilized. At least Michonne and Rosita are feeling more defiant than the rest of Alexandria. Given that Maggie, Michonne, Rosita, and Sasha were all present at the killing of Abraham and Glenn at the hands of Negan, and are now the ones leading the call for resistance, maybe it is time for the group to have some strong female leadership. Maybe that is the only way to defeat an adolescent-like sociopath like Negan, with some female or tough motherly discipline and way of thinking. It's just a thought I had. Rosita, at the end of the episode, asked Eugene to make her a bullet, something we know he can do from last season's episode where he showed Abraham the location of that bullet-making facility he'd come across. I can only guess that Rosita has plans to attempt to kill Negan herself for Abraham, regardless of the fact that he'd ditched her mere days before this all happened for Sasha. And Maggie and Sasha are still out there, as well as Carol, and it's only a matter of time before she joins Ezekiel and her new friends in the kingdom, informing a cavalry the likes of which we've not yet seen on this show. Finally, and our DVR cut this off, so I I had to go and watch it online. The final scene of the episode seemed to bolster Michonne's desire to rebel. After agreeing with Rick to attempt to try to accept the new way of life and make it work, Michonne headed out to the car where she had taken target practice earlier in the episode, only to follow smoke plumes to discover the mattresses that the saviors had taken, burned and discarded. Not only had they taken everything of comfort, hope, and defense from the survivors, they had not even taken it out of necessity. It was just a giant FU to the group. And from her facial expression, we know that this lit that fire in her to rebel. Again, I think Rick will eventually lead this alliance against the axis of evil that is Negan and the Saviors. But until he is ready, it's good to know that the women of the group have the foresight and fortitude to establish the resistance until Rick makes it back around the Rick Grimes cycle to the badass leader the group needs. Now, we're going to move on to the Westworld episode that absolutely changed everything. Unless, of course, you subscribe to one of my theories already, but let's get into that now with the Westworld episode with a French title that loosely translated means deceive the eye, or directly translated as optical illusion. Charlotte coerces Teresa into helping her oust Robert and gain access to the park's IP that he's been keeping to himself. Meanwhile, Maeve engineers another visit to the Mesa, and William and Dolores grow closer as they head for the maze. As I said, trompe l'oeil means deceive the eye in French, and since I don't speak French, I'm sure I butchered it mercilessly. The concept is an art technique that uses realistic imagery to create the optical illusion that the depicted objects exist in three dimensions. Forced perspective is a comparable illusion in architecture, and it was the technique that Dolores used in the episode to show depth in the painting or drawing that she created on the bedsheets of the train. It also applies metaphorically to the deception pulled on all of us and many of the characters on Westworld about who is a robot and who is human. If you are listening to my reviews carefully, you will have already heard last week my theory, which was confirmed in this week's episode, that Bernard is a host. Many viewers will now claim that it seemed clear from nearly the beginning, unless you were occasionally imagining 
imagining a double bluff where he was too robotic to actually be a robot. But it turns out that the mechanical man was a host all along. I've even seen a few Facebook posts in my newsfeed claiming as much. But unless they told you, like I did last week, that this was their theory, I would question whether it truly was as clear from the start for most. Then again, the title of this Westworld episode refers to the artistic technique of making a flat image appear to be three-dimensional. So maybe this is a message about how far we should trust the straightforwardness of how these characters are presented. Bernard opens up the episode dreaming of his son's dying day. This, and his entire existence really, point toward Ford toying with memories and reveries for a lot longer than we actually knew. Within the episode, Bernard is fired immediately after an obviously faked demonstration of a violently glitching host, but he refuses to throw Ford under the bust, most definitely thanks to his programming, and then he draws Teresa to the cabin where Ford's robo-family lives. That moment with the basement door triggers the first hairs on the back of your neck and was the moment I threw my hands up in the air in celebration of my Bernard theory being confirmed. Immediately after explaining to Teresa that hosts are programmed to be blind to the cabin, Bernard is unable to see the door that Teresa goes through. What door, he says, before tentatively following her down. Of course, in this do-it-yourself robo-construction zone, Teresa finds the blueprints for Bernard and she becomes the blood sacrifice alluded to at the beginning of the episode. So for me now, her death opens up a boatload of new questions about the future. How does her murder satiate the board? How will it be explained? Why is it necessary? Did Ford see her as that big of a threat to his empire or as the main threat to it? Who will the board get to smuggle Delos tech out of the park in malfunctioning robots now that Teresa is gone? What's most incredible about Bernard's revelation and Teresa's demise is how Ford essentially degrades her humanity just as she's about to die. He acts as though all active things are dictated by their programming, remarking that a peacock is essentially a dirty dull bird barely able to fly, consoled by its own beauty. Teresa feels betrayed by her intimacy with the Bernard bot, but it's all just ones and zeros for him and DNA and instinct for her after all. A dance of seduction that she succumbed to because she, according to Ford's way of thinking, never really had a choice. So are we the puppets or the puppeteers? And if you have to ask, does the answer really matter? This interaction with Ford reminds me of Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene Theory and the book that I read in college. Dawkins uses the term selfish gene as a way of expressing the gene-centered view of evolution as opposed to the views focused on the organism and the group, popularizing ideas developed in the 1960s by W.D. Hamilton and many others. From the gene-centered view, it follows that the more two individuals are genetically related, the more sense, at the level of genes anyway, it makes for them to behave selflessly with each other. Lineage is expected to evolve to maximize its inclusive fitness, the number of copies of its genes passed on globally, rather than by a particular individual. The contention is that the genes that are passed on are the ones whose evolutionary consequences serve their own implicit interests to continue in being replicated, not necessarily those interests of the organism itself. And that feels a lot like the theory that Ford espouses with the peacock. So what does this encounter with Ford say about him? The revelation also shows how little Ford is worried about other hosts gaining some kind of sentience. Bernard was the head of a department after all. Also, it turns out that Ford's sort of crazy, <laughs> and that's actually pretty great news, for us as the viewers anyway, because Hopkins can freeze water by talking to it, so it might have been a waste to make him this benevolent inventor just trying to navigate the harsh world of big business. It is going to be much more interesting if Robert Ford is insane and provide much more of an acting challenge for Hopkins than if he were just merely a benevolent inventor. 
mentor. Think more Hannibal Lecter than Odin or Burt Monroe. Much of the storyline that ends in Teresa's brutal death has to do with the possibility of non-park related robots, albeit in a really subtle way. Charlotte, the visiting board member, calls Teresa in for a meeting and we learn why Charlotte wanted Teresa to send information from the robots outside of the park. The board's interest in Westworld has nothing to do with fantasy role-playing and narrative fulfillment. They want the data that's been accumulating over the past 35 years, data that Ford could wipe away in an instant if he so chose. So while he's still in a position to do so, Delos has been using Teresa to protect their investment. And Hale confirms that the data is more valuable than the park and its silly cowboy playing denizens. And that's no surprise there because everything in this park is imagination shattering tech and the people and their information are the product worth investing in. Just what plans they have to do with that investment aren't clear at the moment, but I'm doubting it's for the betterment of humanity. Creating robots indistinguishable from human beings opens up a lot of possibilities and it's doubtful that a multi-billion dollar corporation is going to be looking at the non-profit relatives. If the show decides to take its cue from the original movie's sequel, Future World, we might be looking at a high-tech version of body snatching. For right now though, Charlotte's aggressiveness and willingness to lie and manipulate to achieve her ends aren't exactly building a lot of trust for Delos in my mind. Although, to be fair, by the end of the episode, none of the humans, outside of maybe William, are looking particularly good. Teresa and Charlotte team up to reprogram Clementine for a supposed demonstration of the damage that Ford's reveries have done to the hosts at large. It's a brutal scene as Clementine first get beaten by another host, and then, after being allowed to fight back, is shot for her troubles. And that's not the end of her suffering, either. This is the first time we've seen Ford directly threatened, although it's Bernard who seems to pay the price. Charlotte tells him he's fired, presumably because she can't take on Ford directly just yet. But the nightmare Charlotte and her team offer up is one of robots with grudges, snapping their chains and killing anyone who gets in their way. Indeed, the test with Clementine was a descent into the horrifying possibilities we've considered since the creepy deep freeze storage area was revealed in the first episode. What if the hosts turn violent and we can't shut them off? Never mind that she was clunkily reprogrammed to attack by Teresa and Hale. Her superhuman ability to fight back was unnerving and almost definitely a sign of what's to come. And of course, on the other side of the coin, Maeve has decided to escape after seeing Clementine lobotomized. Will the deep freeze come into play for her escape plan? I would bet almost definitely. She slices through the brutish Sylvester's puny misgivings about it being a suicide mission by reminding him that she's already died millions of times and giving him a choice between helping her or losing his heartbeat permanently. It's an easy choice for Sylvester, even though his whining excuses for lobotomizing her friend reeked of Nazi complicity. It was the I was only following orders defense taken to its natural conclusion. Felix is even easier to convince because he's already infatuated with Maeve and he's terrified that one of the bosses will notice how often she's backstage, but he's also too weak-kneed to do anything about it anyway. Maeve is in charge now and it's going to be awesome. It seems that Teresa is gone for good, though. At least the human iteration of her is. I'm wondering if Ford doesn't have a backup of her somehow pre-programmed mind lying around, and that host that was being created when she walked into the do-it-yourself workshop wasn't meant to be a robot version of her, partly because it would be a good, unsettling way to cover his tracks, and partly because it continues my thoughts that maybe they are incorporating the whole body-snatching element of Future World into this series as well. That could be really awesome. Everything in this episode 
episode pays off beautifully in the end when the ground is pulled out from under us. Of the non-guest humans, Bernard is the closest thing to a character we could identify that this show has offered us, especially with Jeffrey Wright's quiet, mournful dignity, suggesting a level of empathy and compassion most of the other humans on this show completely lack. But he's an act, a routine, an illusion, although probably not one we can discount entirely. The discovery that he was built in the park by Ford renders Bernard into a tool, but whether or not his true nature completely invalidates the investment he's previously earned from us remains to be seen. Also, I hope we get more flashbacks like the one we got of the CGI'd Hopkins slash Robert Ford earlier this season, and not only because flashbacks are my favorite storytelling device, but rather so that it'd be a nice way to get some more substantial information and and get a clearer sense of what both Ford and Arnold brought to the whole Westworld project and what Arnold's continued influence means for the future. And speaking of Arnold's influence, we don't even have time to touch upon Dolores and William's adventure this week in their search for the maze. Although I'd be remiss if I did not mention that Dolores's use of the trompe l'oeil technique this week and the landscape created from her imagination being real means that I know the uncharted area they found that matched her drawing is most certainly the entrance to the maze, don't you think? Anyway, that's all the time we have for Westworld this week. Only three more episodes left in season one, and I hope to hear from some of you on some of your theories on where we're going. All right, finally, we'll wrap up this week's reviews with Michael and Tim's supernatural review and discussion on the episode entitled The One You've Been Waiting For. Michael J. Petty here. Welcome back to the Supernatural segment of the Across Areas podcast, where we're talking about Season 12, Episode 5, entitled The One You've Been Waiting For. With me today is my friend and fellow ally in the war against the Nazis, Tim Cook. I just need to say, everyone, Dean killed Hitler. Yeah, right. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, no. I, this episode was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm really excited to get into it. So, one of my favorite episodes through Supernatural season, which was probably my favorite season post the Kripke era, was the episode Everybody Hates Hitler. Uh, Supernatural has dealt with Nazis a few times throughout the past couple seasons, even having Dean go back to World War II to find the hand of God last season. But Everybody Hates Hitler kind of started the trend of introducing us to the Thule Society, a group of Nazi necromancers bent on returning Hitler, or on resurrecting Hitler, I should say, and the Third Reich to its former glory. In their adversaries, the Judah Initiative, which was a group of Jews who were fighting against the Nazi necromancing group pre- and post-World War II. The first group, Thule Society, is actually based off of a real historic group, which is kind of interesting. The one you've been waiting for the episode covering day is a sort of sequel to Everybody Hates Hitler, not just because Dean kills the resurrected Adolf Hitler at the end, but also because the leadership is largely destroyed. Tim, I really liked this episode, and I thought it was a solid sequel to the season eight episode as well. And though I was glad we got to see Aaron Bass again, who was kind of the main character in the Everybody Hates Hitler episode, albeit we saw him briefly, I was sad that we didn't get the chance to see his golem, him and his golem, in action against the Nazis once again. What were your thoughts on Supernatural bringing back the school society, and did it work at all for you? Oh, uh, well, first off, I need to say Dean killed Hitler. And second <laughs> off, I think this episode really does work for me, because um, I really like when Supernatural goes back to plot lines. They haven't necessarily wrapped up. And this is one of those great episodes where we see them, in a way, wrapping up the Everybody Hates Hitler episode, but also at the same time leaving it open enough where we could see Aaron Bass and his Gollum again, and we could even see more of the Thule Society because he's talking about this big gathering that's supposed to happen in Berlin, Germany that he's going after in this episode. And then we see them trying to resurrect Hitler with Sam and Dean in America. So I do think there's still some of the Thule High 
command out there. And who knows what those guys are up to. So it's interesting to, to think maybe we could potentially get another episode in the future. But this was also, in my opinion, a really good sequel to Everybody Hates Hitler. And I do agree with you that season eight is probably one of the better post-Kripke era seasons. And I know that Everybody Hates Hitler was definitely an interesting episode that had a lot of implications in terms of these Nazi necromancers. And it also kind of plays into an episode we saw last season as well. Yeah. Ironically enough, it's also the first episode that we see the Men of Letters Spunker. Yeah, that's true. That is kind of cool. Yeah, I really like that. Um, Instead of rehashing all of the plots from that episode in season eight, because the episode in season eight really uh, focused largely on the fact that this Thule society was learning how to make themselves kind of immortal. And they had already obviously done that to a point, but they were trying to figure it out even more so, so that they could live even longer than what they were already doing. And we find out that this golem has been sent to destroy this whole society by Aaron's grandfather. And I thought it was that this episode actually worked very well in establishing that, oh yeah, he's still out doing his thing, but now we're going to go back to Sam and Dean and how they're going to respond seeing Nazis back in America because they haven't really been around since. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think we can both agree. I think we would have liked to see a little bit more of Aaron Bass. I mean, you're right. The Everybody Hates Hitler episode was kind of meant to establish him as a character in the supernatural universe. And it feels kind of odd to have a sequel without the main character of the original. So I think both of us can agree we would have liked to seen him. And from what the the little bit we get of him when he's having a conversation with Sam and Dean while he's in Berlin, is we get the sense that there's something really big going on with the Thule Society and that the resurrection of Hitler is part of this big plan to kind of finally reform the Third Reich. And so I think it would have been really interesting if we'd gotten kind of a bigger picture of what was fully going to go on and what's going on over in Germany too and kind of all the Thule High Command getting together in one place. Yeah, I agree, and I think it's definitely possible that we could end up seeing that at some point. I would like. Anyway, kind of like how Sam helped Magda last week, this week he helped our other new guest character, Ellie. You know, if Dean is the strong one who can run into a situation guns a-blazing, then Sam is the smart one who can talk with the victims and earn their trust just through empathizing with them on a given situation. I love the scene this week where Sam was talking to Ellie about her being adopted and being a descendant of Hitler, and to lighten her burden a little more, he mentions that he was actually the intent vessel for Lucifer. <laughs> Obviously, she doesn't believe him, but I kind of thought it was hilarious anyway. The more I think about this episode, though, and we kind of talked about it already, but the more I really do wish that Aaron and his golem had been in it, because Aaron being there, I think, would have made it possible for Ellie to get over her fears, as he did four seasons ago. And at the end of the episode, they could have decided to partner up in taking down the rest of the society in Germany going over there. But nevertheless, I thought Ellie was used very well in this episode, and I'm glad that Mr. Catch didn't show up and kill her this week like he did with Magda last. But I guess because she didn't have any powers or actually kill anyone besides a Nazi, he didn't really need to. Tim, what were your thoughts on Ellie's character? Did she serve her purpose well? Also, do you agree? Do you think that my kind of concept that Aaron could have worked his own thought process from a few seasons ago out with her this episode could have been used well and actually worked? Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, I think Ellie's an interesting character. We kind of see this kind of typical girl going about her every day and kind of this little bit of an oddball person. And all of a sudden she gets wrapped into this plot where it turns out she's the descendant of Hitler. And in the process, she finds out she's adopted and that evil Nazi zombies want to use her as a vessel to resurrect Hitler. So, you know, kind of a, as she said, probably her third worst day. She um, handled it pretty well. So, 
Yeah. <laughs> Given all the circumstances, I would say she did handle it pretty well. You know, we did talk about it a little bit earlier in terms of Aaron and his Gollum not being part of the sequel when they were the original episode. And I do think that they could have played a big role in helping Ellie kind of come to terms with all of this. And maybe if they had included Aaron, we could have found a new ally in the fight against the Thule. We did see her get off a table with a lot of blood loss and take out a Nazi. So she's clearly a capable person. It would have been interesting to see maybe her develop into a Thule hunter along with Aaron and his Gollum. Those three being a team that was out there hunting them down uh, could have been an interesting little side thing happening in the supernatural universe. Kind of like that Bloodlines episode we're never going to see a sequel for. Yeah. <laughs> that the two of us are very grumpy about because we definitely want to see the end of that that storyline. But And you were talking a little bit earlier about kind of Sam helping Magda last week and him helping Ellie this week. And I think one of the things we can conclude from it is that they're really trying to give Sam a reflection of his past this season. Mm. His mom coming back into the picture, him having to deal with the superpowers he once had, him having to deal with, you know, kind of coming to terms with him being a vessel. Exactly. These are very key points to who Sam was in the early seasons. And I'm really interested to see where they're going to take that and what else they're going to dig up for him this season. Uh, What else he's going to have to kind of face from his earlier, from his first five seasons. Well, I mean, he's had to deal with being a vessel. He's had to deal with uh, the powers he had. Who knows what else he's going to have to deal with this season. They keep bringing up a lot of things that Sam has had to deal with over the years. So it'll be really interesting to see what else they wind up bringing up this season for him. All right, I'm calling it now. Next episode, we're going to deal with souls. (laughs) (laughs) We might. We might. It was a half a season plot that Sam didn't have one, so... That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah. So, in this episode, we essentially learned that Thule's entire plan is to ultimately resurrect Hitler and bring back the Third Reich. We mentioned that. We always kind of knew that there was a, that was their ultimate goal, being to bring back the Nazi Empire, but the concept of Hitler's soul being forced into a Nazi pocket watch was an incredibly interesting to me. Supernatural has some really weird stories over the years, and has changed history in very strange ways, but this has got to be one of the strangest. I mean, there are many people who believe that Hitler actually survived World War II. I, myself, am kind of one of them. And I'd love to recommend Plug, Family Friend, Steve Quayle's book, Empire for the Ice, if you ever want to read more on that. But I thought the concept of him actually being trapped in the watch was really funny, given Hitler's original status as leader of Germany. Tim, what were your thoughts of Hitler showing up this week on Supernatural? Did you ever expect that to happen? And did you also find it funny that he was trapped all this time? Also, how could the Nazis have ever lost that watch if they were the same ones putting his soul on it in the first place? Well, first off, let me say, Dean killed Hitler. Um, <laughs> second off, <laughs> second off, I think, you know, I've been watching Supernatural for years, and I think the last thing I expected Supernatural to do was introduce us to Hitler. (laughs) But um, I think it was definitely a funny premise. And I also had to ask myself the question, how the heck did the Nazis lose the pocket watch? I mean, they kind of explained it in this episode, but you have the soul of the Fuhrer trapped in a pocket watch and you lost it to a bunch of Soviets. I mean, you would think that that would have been the Germans' number one goal is to to hunt that thing down and, and get it back. And it's kind of funny that they haven't done it till now, you know. 
Right. Well, the funny thing is, I was talking with Nico about this before we even recorded, because he had mentioned that he had watched the episode, so we got to mm-hmm. talking, and I mentioned that same thing. I'm like, I don't understand how they could have lost his watch. The same guy Hitler possesses in this episode is the same one put his soul in the watch in the first place. <laughs> and I was like, at, at the very least, they could have like implanted it in the guy's body, surgically, or something that would have kept right. it safe this whole time. But yeah, no, because they don't, I mean, they kind of talk about it, but they don't really explain. And, and if you really want to get into it, I, I really want to know how the heck it took them this long to hunt the thing down. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's been 70 plus years since Hitler killed himself. You you kind of have to ask the question, how the heck have they not been able to find it? And they knew where it went. It went to uh, Russia, and then they talk about it going down to South America, and then finally winding up in America somehow, and it bouncing all over the place. So they've clearly been tracking the thing, but why the heck didn't they just take it back and kidnap uh, one of his relatives about, you know, 50 years ago? <laughs> I don't know why they decided to wait until now. Maybe they were trying to perfect, you know, their immortality ritual or, or something. But it's kind of weird to think that they lost Hitler's soul for 70 plus years. Right. <laughs> also, Hitler's obsession with dogs had to have been probably my favorite thing. <laughs> Feed it to the dog. You don't have any dogs. Get some. <laughs> I mean, it was a really interesting characterization of Hitler. He seems like, I mean, we Neurotic. think of Hitler as this kind of high-strung guy in in this episode he's like almost like diabolically like cruelly hilarious in this weird way where he's making fun of some guy's dead wife you know i mean it doesn't sound like the hitler we know but you know it's a tv show creating hitler for you and at the very least i'd have to say it was funny <laughs> well i mean if you had been trapped in a pocket watch for 70 plus years i would also be driving driven insane pretty quick well i mean i don't know if my first reaction would be to feed everyone to the dog or, you know, I mean, it was definitely an interesting way to do it. And that's never how I thought we'd have to see Hitler on Supernatural. Not that I ever thought we'd see Hitler on Supernatural, but I didn't think we'd see him in some other guy's body. That's for sure. Gotta be honest, I was a little disappointed he wasn't wearing the stash. Right? I know, me me too. Like, iconic Hitler right there wearing the stash. And we didn't even get, you know, here's the thing. I wonder if Hitler had come back, if he would have wound up growing the stash back. This is a question we'll never get an answer to now because Dean (laughs) killed Hitler. (laughs) On that note, we have to go to our probably the best part, my favorite part of the episode. (laughs) At the end, where Sam and Dean rescue Ellie from Hitler and the Fools. You know, it's that's funny. Hitler and the Fools sounds like a great name of a punk rock band. But Elliot actually saves the brothers before they return the favor. And eventually, Dean takes Hitler down and puts a bullet in his head, ironically how history says he died anyway, finally exclaiming, I killed Hitler, which we've been mocking about the entire episode. But, you know, my favorite Dean is of this week, for sure. And I know you loved it as much as I did, if not more, clearly. But I thought it was a great Dean moment. And like Sam said, we're never going to be hearing the end of this until the series ends. Also, Dean wanting to use the grenade launcher was priceless. I'm really excited for the time Sam is actually going to let him use that because that is going to be awesome. I know there wasn't a whole lot of Sam and Dean development this week outside of what we've already talked about with Sam, but Tim, do you have any other thoughts on the Winchesters this week worth mentioning? Well, one of the things I wanted to bring up, it's not necessarily on the Winchesters, but we did see their interaction with the son of the Nazi soldier this week, or the, the Nazi high commander this week, and I'm interested to see what goes on with him. We've seen through last week's episode 
episode that the men of letters, the English men of letters, are keeping tabs on them, and Mr. Ketch is hunting people down and killing them when Sam and Dean don't do it themselves. So I'm interested to see if this guy who escaped the Thule is going to be one of the casualties of the Men of Letters. Mm. He seems like the perfect target. A zombie who's been, well, he's not a zombie, but his father's a zombie and he's been helping zombie Nazis. He seems like the kind of person that the men of that the British Men of Letters would go after and hunt down and kill. So it'll be interesting to see if they go after him and how many people they wind up taking out before Sam and Dean realize what's going on. One of my thoughts thoughts for this week is I'm interested to see where that goes and if we're going to see any more of him or if he's going to be taken out by the men of letters. Also, come on, it's going to be one of our favorite Deanisms is I killed Hitler. Oh, that yeah. was great. I mean, I've been making the joke all episode, uh, during now throughout the entire podcast because it's just such a perfect Dean moment and it's exactly kind of what we'd expect of Dean and also the rocket launcher. I mean, I think if they'd used it this week, it would have been priced but now we have the anticipation of Dean getting to use a rocket launcher at some point in the series. And I'm really excited to see Dean get to use a rocket launcher. Yes. Also, how much killing Hitler and doing this whole mission, I think, got Dean back into the groove of Dean. At the beginning of the episode, we see Dean not wanting to eat pie, which, I mean, Dean always loves pie. I don't think there's ever been a season in Supernatural history where Dean hasn't scarfed down pie. This may be the first episode in all of Supernatural history where Dean doesn't want to eat one. And then by the end of the episode, he's ready to go get pie again because he killed Hitler. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I know next week Mary is going to be coming back, and I kind of want that to be the first thing that Dean gets to brag about when he sees her. Oh, by the way, Mom, while you were gone, I got to kill Hitler. (laughs) Somehow, I think it'll come up for a couple of episodes this season. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, man. now, Now I'm really excited for the episode where they go visit Jody and her gang of misfits and also a great punk rock band name and then he also gets to bring up to Jody how he killed Hitler. Well actually we might get to kill two birds with one stone because next week both Jody and Barry are back. Oh that is true. Yeah and Billy the Reaper who you know we, we couldn't care less about a little bit but we'll a see how that bit. one goes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well that being said I think we pretty much covered this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah it was, it was a great episode I really enjoyed it. I mean you talk about a perfect episode for Dean, and I think it's this one right here. Great conclusion to Everybody Hates Hitler, and uh, I'm interested to see if we get the Thule anymore. Yeah, no, I am too. So next week, guys, we'll be talking about episode 6, entitled Celebrating the Life of Asia Fox. And this It's <laughs> going to be an interesting episode. I know that it has to do with the Hunter's funeral, so we'll see how everybody gets tied into that one. But, cool announcement, I think you and I are actually going to be in studio together next week. Yes, we will. So... <laughs> So that'll be sweet. We'll have our first actual live episode of this. Uh, well, not live, but we'll be recording it in the same place for once, as opposed to across many, many states. So you guys have that to look forward to as much as we do. Also, one last final thing to say. This is more for me and Michael, but they were talking a little bit about the background of Ella this week. And she's from Wheaton, Illinois, which yep. me and Michael both went to school in Wheaton. We went to a place called Wheaton Academy. So a little bit of a throwback to us from someone who's come from literally the area we live at so uh that was pretty cool just a little reference for both me and michael there which was neat yeah definitely sweet i mean technically we went to school in chicago but it was called wheat academy well i wasn't gonna tell them that it's a lie (laughs) it's a lie (laughs) 
No, but yeah, that's totally true, and it's really funny. I we've both spent quite a bit of time at Wheat, so that's mm-hmm. it's it's kind of funny that a girl like that came from there. All right, guys. That being said, we'll hand it back over to Nico, and we'll talk to you guys next week. All right, guys. Thanks again for your supernatural review. Can't wait to hear what you guys have to say about next week. And speaking of next week, on next week's episode, we'll f- continue the fall 2016 TV season with a review of the next episode of Walking Dead: Star Wars Rebels Returns, another episode of Westworld, and another review from Michael and Tim on Supernatural. Make sure to send in your reactions to all these shows by noon on Monday to help enrich our discussion on Walking Dead, Westworld, Star Wars Rebels, and Supernatural. Also, DC Nation continues with episodes of Gotham, Supergirl, Flash, Arrow, and DC Legends of Tomorrow. Also, be sure to keep an eye out for Steve, Wu, Nikki, and the rest of the Marvelverse crew doing the Marvelverse podcast and their coverage of the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universes. But for now, and most of the season, let's roll Dan's pre-recorded closing. Get at our Across the Airways podcast network website, acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.com. You can check out all of our podcast shows, available as their own individual programs, get the iTunes store, get Google Play store. Guys, for the podcast shows, cut our network. We have the DC Nation podcast, located at dcnation.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's dcnation.acrosstheairways.com, which reviews popular DC Comics-related TV shows and movies. There's also the Marvelverse podcast, located at marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's marvelversepodcast.acrosstheairways.com, which reviews Marvel Comics-related TV shows and movies. And we also have Thronescast, our podcast dedicated to reviewing episodes of HBO's Game of Thrones, which is available at the website thronescast.acrosstheairways.com. Again, that's thronescast.acrosstheairways.com. In addition to these programs, you can listen to the original Across the Airways podcast, which is accessible at acrosstheairways.com, which reviews TV shows not related to superheroes, core Game of Thrones, like The Walking Dead, Doctor Who, Star Wars Rebels, Supernatural, and more, including sitcoms such as The Big Bang Theory and The Muppets. Also, you can listen to Across the Airways, the DC Nation podcast, Thronescast, the Game of Thrones podcast, and the Marvelverse podcast, Got the mixed radio station, code by Jack Stifle. Stitcher Radio. Or if you use Apple devices, download the Podcast Box app. Got if you're on a Windows or Android device, you can download our apps from the Amazon Marketplace. Got the Windows Marketplace. Got a regular Windows or Windows Phone app. Because for how you can contact us to give your own listener feedback, got the TV shows we review, provide suggestions on how we can improve your podcast listening experience, or just want to say, do you like what we're doing? Email us at acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways.gmail.com. Comment on our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter. Got across their waves. There's no thought in there. It's just across their waves. Join our circle. Got Google Plus. Or leave us a voicemail by calling 773-809-3363. Could get it 773-809-3363. Also, when sending us an email, please mention which podcast show you're directing the message to. Get the subject line. Give you our sending us listener feedback you want us to read. God the air. I would also recommend that you check out our YouTube page, which features trailers for upcoming movies and television events. Along with this content, the ATA YouTube channel is a great source for panels from past Comic-Con. And it will be a great resource to find videos related to the Comic-Con taking place in San Diego this summer to go along with our Comic-Con special. Okay, so once again for our other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki Amy Wukim, Joshua Mercury, Steve Nostro, James Heffel, and Michael J. Petty, I'm Nico Reifstek, and until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See you guys, and thanks for joining us for another episode of ATA covering Walking Dead, Westworld, and Supernatural. See ya! I'll this. Dude, you killed Hitler. Yeah.
awesome. I killed Hitler. I killed Hitler. I killed Hitler. I think that entitles me to free drinks for the rest of my life. I'm gonna get t-shirts made. You know no one's gonna believe you, right? Well, you believe me. You were there. This is London calling. Here is a news flash. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. I repeat that. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. Now return to our regularly scheduled program.